So we started last week uh, a series that I am excited about because I think it's just a cool angle we don't always take, but it's the series called POV. As you can see, I don't have my TV here, so sorry, you'll have to follow along um, because the TV's in another room. But what this idea is, is that in order for us to fight against the enemy, we have to understand the enemy. And I think we often, and sometimes it can feel weird, we don't have too many talks or series on the enemy because it's like, well, if we give him attention, then we're like kind of building the enemy up. And it's like, I kind of get the understanding that it's good for us to understand how he moves because we're in a battle. We're in a battle for our hearts. Jesus and the evil one are fighting for our hearts. And so for us to fight well, we need to understand the opponent or the person that's fighting against Jesus. It's just like in football, basketball, whatever sport, like when you play football, you're sitting down at times to watch film of yourself and maybe watch film of the other team so you can understand how they play. You can understand what what plays they run, how they run their offense, defense, whatever it is, so you can play better against them when the time comes. This is the same understanding when we look from his point of view. How does he work? What are ways and things that we can pick up on so that when we're navigating life, we can also see from his point of view what he would do? And so that's what we want to dive into. We looked last week, if you want to go back and look at it, in the garden and look at the first kind of interaction Satan has with Adam and Eve and and how he navigated this. Today we're going to look at two interactions that he has in the book of Job. And we're going to look at those two interactions and pick up some things as well. But as we get in, and start looking at the point of view, I'm going to tell you a story about point of view. Um, A little while ago, I I was debating on whether I should tell this or not, um, because it's not a bad story. It's just like, it is an illegal story, if you want to say. Um, But we were were playing, um, I think we ended up coming in here. We came in here all the time. We'd break in, and um, I think we were playing like, hide-and-seek with a bunch of people. There's like 10 of us, not a bunch, but a handful of us. So we're playing hide-and-seek or something, and I can remember there was a little bit of time where I didn't see my brother or Wyatt here. I was like, okay, we've like found pretty much everybody, but we cannot find my brother and, and Peyton's brother, Wyatt. And so we're going on for a while, and I think it had been a half hour, 45 minutes, and we can't find them. So finally, I'm like, somebody's texting them, like, where are you guys at? We can't find you. And all of a sudden, they just showed back up at the church. And so I'm like, okay, they were somewhere. I don't know where they were. Uh, And so after everybody leaves, and I think we went back to our house, and we were hanging out in our room like we typically did. And so they start telling us. They said, okay, you want to know where we were at? I was like, okay. I said, back behind. If you go back here, um, we lived here on Fairview. You go back behind there on the golf course, right on that road by Brookside West, you can probably see it from the road, there's a water tower. And so they were explaining that they had climbed this water tower and they were on top of the water tower and that they could see literally all of Ashland from the top of this water tower. Because it's there's like, I think, different heights when it comes to water tower. There's like the fairground water tower that's super high. This one is high, but it's not like extremely high compared to the, the fairgrounds water tower. So I was like, this is interesting. I'm not a huge height person. I've shared stories. I don't like heights. But I was interested because they're telling me all this stuff from their point of view and what they're seeing. And I'm like, 
I'm really scared, but there's also part of me that wants to see what they're seeing. And so, uh, eventually, uh, I went with them. You walked through the field that was in our backyard, went all the way out there, and I don't even know now if you can, because I think they put cameras up around there, probably because of us, but there's a box. It was almost like an electrical box you had to hop up on so that then you could grab the ladder because the ladder doesn't go all the way to the ground. And then you had to climb the ladder all the way up and you could stand on top of the water tower. And I remember one of the first times I shook the entire time. That's how scared I am of heights. I'm like nervous. I'm going to slip on the ladder climbing up. But, but I get all the way up there. And the point of view that they were trying to explain to me was almost exactly as they said. It was incredible. And I know it's an illegal thing to do, but just looking out over Ashland and seeing all these lights and seeing all the different things, it was like, that was an incredible view that I wouldn't have been able to see if I would have just taken their perspective. I had to go and experience it myself and not just take their word. And I think that's what we kind of want to do as we dive in, is we want to get in the point of view that the Bible is talking about from Satan's point of view and start to look at how he navigates in this battle, so to speak, that we're in for our hearts. How does he move? What are things we can see that we can look out for that if we start to see in our lives, we might be able to go, that's not God. And so I think... In Job, we get some more insight. I gave four different things last week. I got four more different things in these two passages in Job that I think we need to look out for as we see how the enemy works. And so we're going to unpack this idea. And if you want to turn there, um, get on your phone because I don't have the TV. Job chapter 1 and 2 is where we're going to look at. But this is the idea we're going to unpack. No one is safe. No one is safe. I think sometimes in our own heads we can think, well, I'm passionately pursuing God, so Satan's not going to come after me. Or I'm on the total opposite end, and I'm not following God at all, so why would Satan go after me? He's got nothing to fight. No one is safe. The enemy, and I was talking to somebody this week, and I think we really need to take these two verses seriously. And John chapter 10 is one of the biggest verses that I'm drawn to as Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. He says this, he says he has come to give life and life to the fullest, but I think sometimes we don't take seriously what he says on the other side of the thief. And he says this, he, in verse 8, all others who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved wherever they go. They will find green pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all of its fullness. Like you have to understand, and I think we see that verse, and we go, yeah, you know, his purpose is to like steal, kill, and destroy. But it's like he is literally doing that in our world right now. Having a conversation with this person this week, he's like, I think he's moved past steal and kill, and he's on to destroy. He's destroying sexuality. We, we have no idea what... what gender we are anymore, what's right, what's wrong. Like he's destroying our culture. He's on a rage to pull people walking with God to walk away from God. Like he's brutal. And then the other passage in First um, Peter, I think it is, it might be Second Peter, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. 
like understand the the description that is given to our enemy. It's not like, oh, he's trying to lie to us. Like he is trying to kill, destroy, devour the human race. And I think we don't always take that lightly. And so that's why I think it's so imperative to look at how he moves so that as we're fighting this battle, we can go, that's not God. I don't need to listen to this. And so in Job chapter 1, I'll read six verses. And there's a couple things, and then I'll read uh, six more verses in Job chapter 2. Two interactions with Satan and God. It says this in verse 6 in chapter 1. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan the accuser came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I have been going back and forth across the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, Job fears God, but not without good reason. You have always protected him and his home and his property from harm. You have made him prosperous in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. So a couple things to pick up in his first interaction. Satan um, comes, and he's talking with God right here. And as we said last week, one of the things we had talked about as he's he's interacting with Eve is that Satan can force you to do things, but he can't physically make you do things. And it seems God kind of echoes that when he's like, you can move and do whatever you want to Job in that last verse, but don't harm him physically. Make sure you understand more than anything, this is the battle of the mind. Satan is using his most primary weapon is your mind and how do I get in the mind to kind of shift things around and even if that's to do physical things so to speak as Job's story if you know he starts taking things away gives him all these different health problems he wants to get in Job's mind and say you got to curse God God ain't protecting you but what we see here is that the first thing and I think is very interesting to me as I was looking at this because I think I always understood this about God, and I think I kind of knew it, but it made it more prevalent when I saw this. In the very um, verse 7, the second verse we read, it says, And Satan answered the Lord, I have been going back and forth across the, the earth, watching what? Everything that's going on. Like I think so often we give God the credit that like it's like, oh, well, the sin that you're trying to do, God always sees it. And and, and he does. But like Satan in this moment says he's been roaming the earth watching everything that's going on. God may be watching everything that's going on, but there's also an enemy that's roaming the earth and watching everything that's going on too. He wants to keep his eyes out. He wants to see what's going on. He wants to find the perfect moment that I can get into the mind, that I can get into that person, that I can make that person trip up, that I can make this person fall. Satan is busy. He's not just sitting back with a crystal ball and saying, okay, bring up the person that I'm going to deceive today. No, no, no. He's watching very intently on who can I trip up today. It's just like when an animal, going back to, to him being a lion, seeking someone to devour, when an animal is stalking their prey, they don't just immediately run out and go after somebody. It's a patient, 
thing that happens as they watch and they wait for that one antelope or that one deer to kind of pull back from the pack and isolate themselves and then that's the chance for them to pounce because they don't got all these others around them to help save them and that's kind of what satan i believe is doing is that as he's roaming the earth and he starts seeing people he's like i'm starting to see them drift maybe it's from god maybe it's from their christian community maybe it's their friends whatever and so they start to isolate and he says this is the moment he pounces Satan is very tricky, as we saw last week, and he plays for the cheap shots. And so he's waiting, watching, being very patient, because he's just very good at his deception, because he's called the father of lies. And so he wants to wait for that moment, watching everything that's going on. And so you need to understand, as another thing that he's doing, is he's roaming, watching everything that's going on. He's seeking for those moments where I can trip him up. And you ever wonder sometimes, maybe you struggle with something for so long and all of a sudden it felt like it was out of nowhere. It's not out of nowhere. Maybe you've slowly been drifting. Maybe you slowly stopped fighting for that. Take something like pornography. Well, I haven't seen it in six years. And then all of a sudden it's like one day you watch it and it's like, what, what happened? And it's like you watch your life slowly and Satan goes, this is the moment. He's watching. And so we have to be careful. We have to be on guard. We have to fight because God isn't the only one seeing everything. There's also an enemy seeing everything as well. The next thing you see as you go down a little further, and I don't know if I would call this necessarily a tactic that he uses, but I think it's something that we need to note that he plays in his game, is when he then um, replies to to the Lord after God says, Hey, have you seen Job? Job's a blameless, upright man. He's a man of integrity. He doesn't like evil. And then this is his response. Yes, Job fears God, but not without good reason. And then he gives all these reasons. Well, you protect him. You put this this kind of wall of protection, this hedge around him. So he's going to praise you because you're putting this protection and he's not going to curse you for being protected. Satan, I think, always has an excuse for righteousness. He's never going to settle if somebody is passionately pursuing God. He's always going to keep fighting to rip them away, and he's always going to make an excuse as to why they're following Jesus. He probably has an excuse for every one of us in here of why we're still following Jesus. Well, you've got them plugged into a young adult group, so that's why they're still following Jesus. Pull them out of that, they're not going to follow Jesus anymore. He's always, he, he, he never has, he can't just be okay with, oh, Well, they're too passionate for Jesus, so I'm just going to let them go. He's got an excuse. He's always never settled when it's not somebody that's falling away from Jesus. And so I think it's interesting to note that, that he's coming up with reasons. He can't just be settled. Well, Job's just a good man. He's like, no, you're doing stuff. You pull that away. They're not going to follow you. And obviously it doesn't work on God. It's almost like he's trying to deceive God here. And it's like, he's not going to deceive God. He's like, okay, go ahead. But Satan's always got excuses as to why you're following Jesus and not falling away from him. So he keeps going. And I think you need to know this. You'll see in both of these, because then in chapter 2, I'll read the second chapter, because these last two kind of go with both of them. 
So it says this in chapter 2, the first seven verses. One day the angels came again to present themselves before the Lord. Satan the accuser came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I have been going back and forth across the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil, and he has maintained his integrity, even though you persuaded me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. He blesses you only because you bless him. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan again, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with a terrible case of boils from head to foot. So another thing you need to know after these first two things in the second interaction as well, and I want to make sure you hear this clearly because I was looking at a couple different things, and this isn't all cases, but at least in this case, and I would say in some cases, Satan needs permission to work. Because you look at other places in the Bible and Satan will move and he'll deceive we don't see an interaction that he has with God before he deceives Adam and Eve. So I can't make this statement that Satan needs permission always to. But it seems that in these two uh, kind of interactions with God, when he's going after Job, he needs permission. Because he goes and he talks with God, and God gives him permission to be able to do something to Job. And so you need to know, in some cases, Satan needs permission. He needs permission. He can't just do whatever he wants all the time. There's certain cases, I don't know what those are. That's kind of the, the ambiguity of Scripture and like how he works. I don't know. It's not like, oh, it's like something happens to Owen, but then say behind the scenes he needs permission to do something to Peyton. I, I don't know what that is, but it's showing us that Satan needs permission, that he's not totally free to do anything he wants all the time. And I think the last thing you need to see in both of these instances, and probably the most brutal one, is that Satan will never give up. You would hope maybe at some point he's like, man, he's been following him for 30 years. I'm just going to let him go. But it's twice now within a chapter that he goes to God and says, he ain't going to follow you if you take away this. He ain't going to follow you if you take away that. He ain't going to follow you. And, and, and he will come, going back to that second point, he'll come time and time again, always an excuse why you're still following Jesus, but he will never give up on you falling away from Jesus. As I mentioned last week, you can go back into, I think it was Ezekiel 28 I had mentioned, and you can kind of see how this transition happened where Satan was kind of this angel that was the most beautiful angel and pride stirred in his heart and he wanted to become God. And so because of that, he was thrown to the earth to do his work that he's doing now. And from that moment on, I think honestly more than anything, I don't know, he's more mad at God because he wanted to be God, and so he's tearing people away from God because he wants people to not follow the man that punished him. And he probably knows the power that God has, and he probably knows the life change that God can give, and so it is his mission to never give up on every single one of us. No one is safe from him at any moment. You might feel like you just came back from a conference, or you just had 
great time with Jesus this morning and you're on fire and it's like, you're not safe. He's always looking for those moments to trip you up. He's never going to give you up. It's not like after five years, he's like, well, you made it past the five year mark, so I'm done with you. It's like, I'll wait 30 years. He'll wait 55 years if he has to for that one moment that will destroy your life. You look at some of these people, you want to bring up some of the most recent ones. You look at somebody like Carl Lentz. He was a young guy up at Hillsong as a pastor, and he'd been going on and on with with the secret affair behind the scenes, even though he had a massive church. You look at Ravi Zacharias, who had an incredible ministry, and then stuff comes out after his death of some kind of boundaries he had crossed. Same thing with Matt Chandler and him saying, I just don't know if I cross some boundaries. Let's see what the elders say. And the elders say, yeah, you cross some boundaries. It's like you're never safe no matter how long you've been following Jesus. He will wait for the moment to pounce on you and destroy you. He doesn't care about your feelings. He doesn't care about what great life you have, what ripple effect it'll cause on your family, and not only your family, but your, your own families. So it's like he's not looking at me and going, well, Taylor's doing really well with Shannon and Willow are doing really well, so I don't want to mess that up. And then I also don't want to mess up Taylor's parents are really nice, so I don't want to cause any harm to them, and Shannon's mom's really nice. So No, he didn't care if it ripples all through the family. He didn't care if it ripples through the church. He didn't care if it ripples through your town. It's, I want to destroy those that are passionately following the man I hate the most. This is why it is so prevalent for us to be people that take our thoughts captive and constantly wake up on a daily basis and say, I want Jesus. I want everything to do with Him. Satan has no power over us. The cross has given us the freedom to live a life for Him, and we can passionately pursue our Savior and not have to worry about this enemy because we have somebody that's conquered the enemy. We can believe in somebody that has power over everything, and so this needs to be our focus. And in these moments when Satan starts to move, in the moments of deception, in the moments when you feel like day after day I'm getting hounded with all this stuff to tear me away from Jesus, you can say, I'm just going to keep loving on my Savior. I'm going to keep living the life for Him because I know what His plan is to give me a false satisfaction thinking this is going to give me all the pleasure in the world and then I feel like crap. Because that's all His life is, a false deception. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I will give you life and life to the fullest. And I try to say it so many times and it's impossible, I think, to put into words. You will never experience anything better than this life with Jesus. It will radically change your life. And so we need to make sure in this battle for our hearts, we're walking towards Him, not away from Him. And the enemy will have everything in his arsenal firing at you to get you to walk away. And as I said last week, I can't prove this. I'm saying it's my own opinion. But I feel like if you're passionately pursuing God, you're probably going to get more thrown at you than those that aren't. Because He wants to rip you away from the Savior. And He says, if you just follow me, I can give you the life you want. He's not going to waste his time on people that are already following him. He wants the people that are against him. And it takes every single one of us to be together 
That's why community is so important. In numbers, it's so much harder. It's just like talking in chapel on Friday to the guys. Uh, a, a cord that has three strands is much harder to break than a cord with one. Satan's not going to go after a group of people because it's a lot harder to deceive a bunch of people than it is to deceive one. He says, if I can just get into one of you guys in this group, then it'll affect the rest of the group. So you got to stay in numbers. you got to passionately pursue the Father. I go all these different things, but here's what you need to know. The four things again. He's watching everything that's going on. He's always giving excuses as to why his plan isn't working or why we're following Jesus. He'll never give up on you. And he needs permission in some cases. He doesn't have total freedom. And so we need to be watching because none of us are safe from the enemy. Guard our hearts constantly. Passionately pursue the Father. So I close with this. Um, just last year, as we're talking about no one is safe, um, during Christmas, the flu bug started going around our family. Like the throw-up flu bug, not just oh, a cold. And so it started with my brother. Actually, yeah, I think it started with my brother. Um, and my little sister and Hunter were went to their house one night to cook dinner for them. I don't even know why there wasn't like a special occasion, but they went, cooked dinner for them. Next day, my brother started throwing up. He thought it was a food. And then so he throws up for a couple of days, and his wife gets it, and then their kid gets it. And then very shortly after that, Emily gets it, because she was at the house the night that he started having the stomach flu. And then Hunter gets it. So now all of a sudden we're at Christmas last year, and we're going... Is it smart for us to get together? It's not like COVID or something like that, where it's like, okay, if it goes, then it's going to spread everywhere really quickly. It's like, but if it does, then what if this person gets it? And then if they get it, the whole house gets it. And then if this person gets it, the whole house gets it. So they're, they're trying to figure out what we should do. Well, they decided, I think it was a couple days after Christmas, or maybe a week after, I can't remember, that we would be safe enough to get together. My brother had had it. His wife, Emily, had it, and, and Hunter, so we're like, we're good. I think it was literally the day after we got together, my dad gets it. My dad starts throwing up everywhere. Then my mom gets it. And then right at the beginning of the year, Shannon gets it. So I thought, I've got a, I've got a cure for this. I'm going to sleep on the couch. I slept on a couch for days. I made her pretty much stay up in our room so that she could keep all the germs there. I'm not getting the stomach flu. I'll be good. A couple weeks go by, she gets better. I don't get it. About the third week of January or the first week of February, somewhere in that time frame, I start throwing up. And it's like just in this one moment where it all started with my brother, it got passed from my brother all through his family, all through my parents' family, all through our family, and I think Kayla's family ended up getting it, or a couple of them did, and it just passed through. Something like that is very hard to contain as a sickness, and no one's ever safe from it. And it's like the same thing with Satan is that we're like, well, we'll just keep going to church, and I'll keep hanging out with Christian people, and I'll be safe from him, and he's not going to come after me. He's just like the stomach flu. You're not safe from it, and he's going to keep coming after you, keep trying to get to you, and keep trying to tear you away from Savior. No one is safe from the enemy.